and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by LARB Editor-at-Large, Kate Wolf, and LARB's Managing Editor, Medea Ocher. Hi. Hey. Hi, Eric. Today we have an interview that Medea and Kate did with writer, visual theorist, and cultural critic Johanna Drucker about her new novel, Downdrift, which addresses the current ecological crisis from the perspective of an archaeon, one of the most ancient species on Earth at 3.8 billion years old. So I was not actually in on that interview, so what did you guys think? Well, Kate, what was your relationship to Joanna's work before the interview? I can't say I'd read that much of her work, but I was always very intimidated and impressed by her because her reputation looms large. It really does. Yeah, I would have to say the same because I'd heard of her. Um, her title at UCLA is incredibly yeah. impressive. Yeah. And, <laughs> and like um, 17 words long. <laughs> yeah, and it always seemed intimidating to me as a sort of, like it had an academic imperviousness that, one either dedicated oneself wholly to or stayed away for for fear of feeling absolutely idiotic. But talking to her was a total pleasure. I, I think she's one of those incredibly smart people that doesn't make you feel stupid. Yeah, yes, <laughs> so, it's true. So that's always a, a bonus, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and she was featured in our genius issue, which felt very apt to me. All right, well, without further ado, let's get to your conversation. Let's do it. Okay. My name is Medea Ocher. I'm the managing editor of the Los Angeles Review of Books. And I have Kate Wolf here with me today, co-hosting. Kate is an editor at large. And we have a very special guest. Joanna Drucker is here. Joanna Drucker is internationally known for her work in the history of graphic design, typography, experimental poetry, fine art, and digital humanities. In 2014, she was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and awarded an honorary doctorate of Fine Arts by the Maryland Institute College of Art in 2017. She teaches at UCLA, my former place of scholarship. And she also has two new books out, which is what we are going to be talking about here today, Downdrift, which is an eco-novel, and The General Theory of Social Relativity. Welcome, Joanna. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks. So I thought we could start with a little bit of a reading today. Give our listeners a sense of the eco-novel, Downdrift. All right. So Downdrift is narrated by a character called the Archean, and I'm going to read just the introductory prologue in the Archean's voice. Reports stream in from around the world. Kangaroos are boxing in the suburban streets of Australia. Urban foxes make eye contact with drivers, then cross traffic in the center of London. Chimps take up tool-making in the wilds of Tanzania. At the same time, their captive brethren in Vancouver use files to pick the locks on their cage doors. The humans take particular note of unusual acts of cross-species compassion. But when a predatory bear shelters a stray puppy and dolphins nurse a wounded shark, the humans only see the cradling gestures and remain deaf to the traditional songs. Uplift is what the humans call this. They would. They imagine every adoption of their behaviors to be an advancement. I see it otherwise as downdrift, the seepage of traits across species. And I? Who am I? I am an Archean, the most ancient creature on Earth. My fossil remains are 3.8 billion years old. I hitched a ride on a comet and arrived from interstellar space while the Earth was still young 
and uninhabited. No other life form was here before me, so you may all be my descendants. I have no face, no furry paws, no big eyes or puffy tail. I'm a modest bit of genetic code enclosed by a cell wall. Hardly appealing. My individual cells are a living network, a gazillion tiny points spread over the surface of the earth, picking up information at every node. I can be in the cities, at the antipodes, in a rushing stream and a vile sinkhole all at the same time, seeing, watching, reporting on the animals' emerging activities. But you will hear nothing from me about the humans. After all, they are the major source of this pollution. Their obliviousness is so complete that by the time they discover the seepage of their psychic attitudes and social behavior, it may be too late to stop the consequences. Eventually, the influence may go the other way. They may sprout monkey hair and grow pig jowls, bark loudly, or crawl on their bellies, but that will require another account. And me? I've been here a long time, and I'll be here much longer. I've lived through extinctions before. I can survive extremes of toxicity, heat, dehydration, and inundation, and I will thrive to tell other tales of evolution and survival when all the rest of you are long gone or are so morphed you will hardly recognize yourselves or the world you live in. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, cheery. Chilling. (laughs) (laughs) So is the Archean a real scientific Thing sure. Or, okay, it is. Archaea were discovered around 1977 by a guy named Carl Vos working with a fellow scientist named James Fox. And their discovery caused a kind of reconfiguration of the classification of life forms. And if you think about the kind of life form in like little tree that you grew up with in biology, it was like plants and animals. And then there were these things that like, well, where do bacteria go or where do fungi go? And so there are a number of terms on which life is classified. And some of it has to do with the way in which DNA and cell walls and the biochemistry of organisms can be described. So the archaea are part of a group that are called prokaryotes, and they don't have a cell nucleus, and they don't have membranes around a lot of what are called organelles inside their cells. So it's the nature of the cell wall. They're very simple. They're the oldest, you know, living things that we have any fossil remains of. And the fossil remains were found in places, you know, like Western Australia. I mean, you know, really rare but identifiable locations with geologically dated rock materials. And so there's some speculation they may have come on a meteorite from outer space, or they could have been formed here, because they're made out of the same compounds as other life forms, but they can survive in real extremes, and they have been found on, you know, material that goes through interstellar space. Mm-hmm. So they're real. So now we think of five different categories of life forms and the archaea, and of course the term means ancient creatures, archaea. So archaea, fungi, bacteria, plants, and animals are the different life categories. Why did the archaea strike you as the perfect kind of foil for an omniscient narrator? I mean, besides the obvious, the poetic, you know, fact of them having been here for so long and possibly being able to outlast all human life. 
Well, it is the age. I mean, it's the sense that, you know, the ecological pressures that are described in the book and that are affecting the animals so that they're undergoing rapid transformations of their behaviors. And that those kinds of transformations take place within a time frame that we measure against a human time frame and human history. But after all, modern humans, as we know them, Homo sapiens sapiens, are really recent developments in terms of the history of the Earth and its multiple life forms. So the idea of the archaea and using an archaean was in part to reference the kind of, you know, span of time against which we might consider the vulnerability of our own situation. But also I'm really interested in distributed forms of intelligence. And one of the interesting things about unicellulars, unis as we call them, (laughs) is that they communicate chemically through all kinds of signaling processes. And, you know, the largest living creature on Earth is a fungus. I didn't know that. I I know. And fungi are a combination of unicellular creatures that also can act as, in aggregate, as a single creature. And there are many kinds of coordinated and aggregate behaviors that biologists don't fully understand because they know there are signals that communicate in order to coordinate, but they don't know who initiates or how it works. Like even swarm behavior in birds and the way that the birds Mm -hmm. configure in order to navigate as a group, who takes the initiative and why? Right. So these things are really interesting to me to think about and to consider in terms of how we understand forms of communication and behavior and intelligence and sentience among living systems in the world. So you actually wrote about this for the issue of the LARB quarterly journal that's coming up, the genius Mm -hmm. issue. And in your piece about distributed intelligence and distributed genius, you mentioned this really amazing, startling episode that happened in India in 2011, I believe, right? Yes. And that sort of solidified, at least in my mind, what it was that you were talking about. Would you mind describing what that incident was and the sort of unexpected, almost unpredictable event <laughs> that should not have happened in almost every right. possible way, And but it, it did? So I'll probably get the specific details a little bungled. That's fine. But basically, Kerala, India experienced a blood red rain. And so what was happening? Like literally. What, literally. Right? Like it literally was actually a blood red rain right. came down. And if you look up photographs of this, you will see that essentially blood rain in the streets and yeah. puddling in pools. And right. it looks incredible. So the question was, what caused this rain? Right, it feels like a biblical plague, yeah, right? God did. Exactly. No, just <laughs> okay. So it turned out that it was the result of a, you know, very large scale, incredibly massive, simultaneous action on the part of some lichen and some algae. And that's where I'll get the details from, because a lichen is actually a combination of algae and fungi, I believe. So, But anyway, the point is that whatever these unicellular creatures were that cooperated in the production of this event, they somehow all had to trigger or be triggered by some event within a very short temporal moment at an extremely large scale to precipitate this highly pigmented dyed liquid um, at the same time. Release their spores at once? At the same time. 
Exactly. Which is completely unlikely. And it's unprecedented. So right. the scale of that was, okay, so what happened? So, I mean, probably there's all kinds of explanations. Scientists are still trying to figure it out, right? Was there a thermal change? Was there a chemical change? Was there an electrical signal? Was there a magnetic wave shift? I mean, you know, there's any number of things that might have occurred. But the point is these are living systems. Mm-hmm. So the living systems act in aggregate, in coordination. And we want to be careful to distinguish between, you know, sort of like intelligence and action and, you know, sentience in the self-reflective way, right? Like there's a point in Downdrift, for instance, where one of the creatures, I think it's the elephant, because they're really super intelligent. And the question is, at what point does an elephant start to represent itself to itself as an elephant or as a thing or as a consciousness or an entity. So we know many animals have awareness and consciousness. If you live with animals, you're, you're very aware of that. But they don't know, but do they have an awareness of themselves as a self? They right. have a lot of awareness of themselves and of their surroundings and of their bodies and of others. But do they have a sense of themselves as a self? And is that the line when we talk about kind of the difference of intelligence or what human beings, I mean, obviously, there are many things that human beings have that animals don't have, or it's debatable, but is that kind of self-reflectiveness or sense of self to you, the dividing line? You know, to me, that is, you know, I think if we look at upper primates and the way in which they behave and the social behaviors of, you know, various kinds of New World monkeys and, you know, other intelligent apes, they have a pretty sophisticated sense of self. Like, they'll recognize themselves in a mirror, right? They'll relate to that. I think the still the thing that is considered a differentiating characteristic of humans is symbolic language, mm-hmm. our capacity to represent things in the world or experiences in a symbolic system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like many other animals have tools and they have emotions, of course, and they have expressions and they have song and all kinds of things, but they don't have a symbolic language that can represent essentially anything. And that's something that's unique to humans. And yeah, speaking of the symbolic, something that's interesting in the book is that it seems part allegory and part fable and the damage that would occur if animals began to (laughs) follow humans, the capacity for symbolic thinking. So maybe you want to talk a little bit about that aspect of the book and Mm -hmm. these animals, you know, going against, if also we imagine animals being driven by instinct and a self-preservational instinct and the foible of human beings is that they don't always seem to act in that interest on a large scale, like right. we could talk about climate change or things where it seems like we are going against our own interest. If the animals suddenly followed suit, that seems a little bit what's happening in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, the animals are definitely, again, being affected by the seepage of right. human behaviors. And again, that's what the downdrift you know, theme is. And again, that's sort of put into contrast with uplift narratives. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know, there's a kind of fantasy genre called animal uplift, where animals, you know, seem to take on human behaviors, and then that like kind of Like an altruistic, like all the yeah. videos on Facebook where yeah. a monkey saves a 
right. turtle from a storm. And, right. Yeah. That's animal uplift right. and stuff. So, yeah, in downdrift, there's a whole range of different behaviors that the animals start to adopt. And some, the you know, it's meant to be both funny and tragic and so forth. So some of it's just from observation. I had an adolescent hawk living in my neighborhood. And, you know, he was just so adolescent. He was so, like, punky, <laughs> like, like, leave me alone. Yes, like, his whole attitude was just, you know, I'm, like, too cool. Don't talk to me. And all I could imagine was that, you know, he was wearing a nose ring and <laughs> doing these things. And, and then, like, the behaviors I described at the beginning, like the foxes in London, that's real, right? And the cave, oh, yeah, no, no, these are real behaviors. And so, so okay. part of what's interesting wow, is that wow. animals really are transforming rapidly under the pressure of being in closer contact with humans or having their habitats But there is some hyperbole in the book, right? There there are animals who are looking on social media yet and applying for jobs. Oh, sure. Just wanted to make sure that was (laughs) was not real. No, not everything in the book is a a true report. But some of it is, you know, again, really meant to be funny. Like, for instance, you know, it's like, what if dogs took over civil service jobs, right? And so they ran the DMV. And then when you got to the DMV, it'd be like, hey, so good to see you. This is great, isn't it? It's so much fun. Hey, nice, huh? And so, you know, just thinking about what are the positions into which animals could move that would actually improve everybody's existence because the animals be happier doing some of those jobs. Well, you talking about the hawk makes me wonder, what's your personal relation? I mean, you're obviously having fun, mm-hmm. right? And animal lover. What is your personal relationship to these narratives of animal uplift and maybe animals at large. Well, so I wanted to call the book Analogy. Okay. And my publishers thought that probably wouldn't was be too bleak. a good <laughs> marketing technique. And yeah. they were right. But it's filled with elegiac melancholy because, you know, I can't watch those National Geographic documentaries. I mean, from the time of my childhood, all of those documentaries had the same arc, which mm-hmm. is that you would be introduced to the animal, you'd see its behaviors, yeah. you'd see its habits, and then at the end it would be, and, you know, and then there would be the story of the faded, you know, sort of eclipse of the conditions in which they were sustainable. So the story of the kind of destruction of animal habitat has been mapped onto our lives. And then, of course, now we're destroying our own habitat. And, you know, the end of the general theory of social relativity book, a very difficult and complex book, but the end of it is a little essay called Cultural Melancholy. And, you know, about the lateness of regret. It's like the too lateness of regret. And I mean, I hope it's not too late, but for me, that feeling of the tragedy of the destruction of the viability of so many of the ecosystems that support life forms is really disturbing. Now, of course, unicellulars will proliferate endlessly. We have more new species coming into being than we have older species going extinct, Mm -hmm. but they're unicellular creatures. So the, as we call them, charismatic animals are the ones who suffer because they're at the top of various food chains and depend upon large, extensive habitats and very complicated ecological systems. So lions and tigers and bears. And how do you manage that regret when you face it, right? If you're facing it textually in a sort of elegiac form, are there other ways in which sort of on a day-to-day basis you are managing this kind of melancholy or this kind of regret? I mean, it is like something I think right. that feels omnipresent whenever mm-hmm. we are 
let's say, doing something as banal as watching a documentary or right. even, I hate zoos, but let's say going to the yeah, zoo. I can't go, I can't go to them. I think horrible. But as a person who seems to be thinking about this a lot, how do you how do you find yourself managing with it? Well, I mean, I'm not an activist, right? I'm a writer. That's what I've been most of my life and a teacher. So part of what I'm interested in is creating pathways to empathy that actually blur those lines between animal and human. And look, each species is distinct. Each species has characteristics. But the creating of a toxic, non-sustainable world is going to affect us as much as it affects other creatures. And so waking up to that is really important. But the appreciation of the animal world and what it has to offer us in terms of understanding life as a very differentiated spectrum of wonderful, marvelous things. It's something I try to deal with in my pedagogy and, you know, so, and in my life practice, it's like, I'm not a vegan, right, but I'm basically a vegetarian. But I also often talk to the students about speciesism and, you know, how speciesism will come to be perceived over time if there is a future. People will look back on this period and, you know, the kind of abuse and brutality in the animal industry, in the animal food industry, will be looked on with absolute horror if there's a future, yeah. mm-hmm. you know. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at KPFK Studios. We've been speaking with Johanna Drucker, author of Downdrift. We will return to that conversation in just a moment. But first, we have this week's book recommendation. We have Morgan Jerkins here with us, and she's going to give us a book recommendation. Morgan, what are you going to recommend? I am going to recommend Sing Unburied Sing by the GOAT for all of you uneducated people that means greatest of all time Jasmine Ward who is the first woman the first person to win the National Book Award twice for fiction twice she's a legend and she also has to make author Genius Grant and she was also in Time Magazine the 100 most influential people so yes Jasmine Ward tell us what you loved about this one book in particular oh Mitz. Jasmine Ward writes about Mississippi, the legacy of slavery, and how it sort of channels into mass incarceration incredibly well. Um, she has a powerful voice, and it's searing. And I, I think Sing Unburied Sing is probably the best novel that I've read in years. Can you tell us again what the title and the author is? Sing Unburied Sing by Jasmine Ward. Thank you so much, Morgan. Thank you. listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Johanna Drucker, author of Downdrift. Something that I appreciated in the book, and I think that it, it's humorous, so because this is something, especially if you're empathic, that's so hard to look at, you know, when you see that image of the polar bear staring back at you on its little ice shroud. I it's know. like you have to look away. It's impossible to take in if you if that kind of thing affects you, and that's how I find it. So it's in this book, it's you find a way to kind of process this intense shift, um, which I appreciated 
you know, because because you can take it in um, because it's slightly slightly you know fabulistic, but it's not. Right. Yeah. So it's it's so it's it seems like it, it. I feel like there's an overlay with science fiction here and um, kind of a dystopian narrative where, mm-hmm. he, where suddenly the animals are doing things that seem so unnatural. But I also wonder, as someone who's so invested in some ways in technology and you know seems uh, you are a digital right. humanities person, um, which I'm hoping you can explain a little bit mm-hmm. about that practice for our listeners if they're not familiar with that term. So I also assume that you have some hope for technology, mm-hmm. um, that you think it can be useful mm-hmm. for us as human beings and not just destructive. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you could talk about that a little. Sure, I mean, technology's not, you know, the devil here. Um, not at all, no. Yeah, I mean, it's decisions of responsible, you know, stewardship of limited resources, human, natural temporal, right? We know the scarcest resource in current culture is attention. So um, the animals are g- getting their attention right. messed up, right? Uh, totally. Yeah. You know, the animals are, are, are taking up all kinds of distraction devices that, you know, are part of the human world. And um, when the lion at the very beginning, so the, the, the arc of the narrative in this tale is a domestic cat and a wild lion who are somehow communicating with each other. They've, they've got some some pathway of communication. And so they're coming to meet each other out of the question of what do we need to learn across our species connection. And of course, they can't learn anything because they can't really communicate the vastness of the difference. And the cat comes from the domestic world. I mean, in many ways, the human world, right? It's a domesticated cat. So we see the kind of transformation from the point of view of domesticity and the animal and the lion sees it from the point of view of the loss of the wild, right? And encountering these worlds he cannot possibly understand. So, you know, as they kind of wander together, you know, they're sort of, you know, encountering one activity after another of these other animals. And so there's a sense that, you know, the systems that interconnect within the world are also things that they're coming into contact with. So the technological is another system. It's not a living system, right? But it's integral to the management of the world. I mean, we make canals, we make roads, we do, you know, these are technological innovations, animals make tools. And, you know, the, the question really is, how do we rethink our relationship to many of the habits and modes of governance, of, of value, of food production, of all kinds of management of resources in the light of the possibility of radical transformation? Like, what if we don't need wage labor, right? Mm -hmm. Like, maybe we don't need wage labor. A friend of mine the other day was like, oh, there's going to be all these automata and people won't have jobs. And it's like, that's okay. The issue is not that they don't have jobs. The issue is what is meaningful within a human life as a way to spend time. And how do we structure a just and equitable world that, you know, allows us to uh, redistribute the use of time and the use of resources. So the problem with most technology is it's so polluting. People don't know that. Right. The cloud, the image of the cloud is the image of the immaterial world. But as we know, server farms in London produce more pollution on a daily basis than all of automobile traffic in the city. 
Right. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I know. But. See, so, you know, heat and waste and, you know, so, so these are the things I think right. that need to be addressed. I just think it's hard because we're inundated with techno-utopias, but they only come from the loudest you know, hearkeners of those are people who work in tech industry who are huge businesses. So the a, a flip side, another bright side involving tech seems a little harder to come by well, in popular imagination. But. Yeah, I mean, I think, what, you know, it's, it's beholden upon us to reimagine the world in a positive way um, using the tools at our disposal. And those are intellectual and emotional, affective tools. I think one of the things, you know, that Downdrift is a part of and the general theory book is the kind of theoretical armature within which Downdrift is the kind of happy, easily consumed version is, you know, questions of what are we doing at the end of the Enlightenment? Our belief in reason, and here we are in the United States, that was founded in the Enlightenment on a belief in reason, and yet what we're seeing in the public world and the political world is the power of affect. Mm -hmm. That affect is what rules, not reason. So rather than trying to fight that by saying, oh, we've got to bring reason back, which after all was an abstract concept, is to understand how does affect work and what are the systems of affect that we can engage in a positive way to rethink our relationship to earth, animals, time, each other, governance, power, wealth, everything, right? But then there, I mean, there are limitations to how effective, oh, this is going to be a messy <laughs> sentence, <laughs> I was going to say effective affect can be, but right, but the, the power, uh, at least the real world power of affect isn't doesn't always seem to work. Well, there's also something, in what the, do you think? There's something in the book where the animals are inundated with information about places that are far away and kind of have nothing to do with them and there's so much of that information they don't even know how to apply it or what to do with it and so in some sense I, I thought of that as some version of like news fatigue where right. you're yeah. where you're looking at terrible stories yeah. from all around the world but again it kind of renders you helpless and you don't know how to right. assimilate that information so it's, yeah. it, it almost yeah it seems yeah. like you can get affect fatigue you can and and yes absolutely and I think that there's I mean a concern that the affective work can substitute other kinds of work, right? That I have done my affective service, and so I have I'm 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 finished, and I'm ready to go on with my life, right? And that that can be sort of a tricky ground to walk on. Sure, I guess um, what I was trying to suggest is that coming to terms with the way in which the sort of shaping of political power works through affect mm -hmm. is going to be a necessary step towards being able to create systems of a, a sort of, you know, reinvention of the social contract. What are the terms of the social contract, right? How do, how do we negotiate a civil society? And so part of what's, you know, fun in Downdrift is that the animals are often trying to, like, negotiate new terms on which to govern themselves. And there's a long scene with uh, the hog, you know, and the hog orators and the the hog has written, you know, a, a, a tract called Porcine Sense, right, which of course is a parody of Thomas Paine and, and Common Sense. Um, but again, part of the joke there is that we're always at the center of whatever system we imagine. So, uh -huh. you know, so like how do we move beyond that? But they're, they're always trying to, to re-regulate themselves. So killing becomes, you know, taboo. 
So you're not supposed to rip somebody's throat out and just, you know, suck their hot red blood. It's like considered (laughs) really (laughs) tacky to do that. Um, Obviously, it didn't work in Hollywood. Anyway, (laughs) so uh, but still, there are other things where it's like, you know, um, from time to time, the salamanders just can't help giving in to the desire to eat a few of their own young. I mean, it's just so quick. It's so tasty. It's so, you know, part of what they've always done. But I do think when I look at humans, systems, part of my concern, the reason I introduce affect, is that the kind of terms on which we understood the capacity to put checks and balances into place within an 18th century vision of how government could work didn't take into account various kinds of technologies, Mm -hmm. opinion, forces that, you know, get built out of opinion-generating systems that are not able to be controlled not to mention the power of capital, which was never adjudicated or legislated within the terms of the democratic project. So those are the things I I think about. So yeah, we're on overload to be sure, but um, on the other hand, we're also, you know, at a kind of really crucial point, I think, in needing to think beyond our faith in certain kinds of systems that we were, at least I was raised as a, you know, radical secular humanist to believe could actually be invoked for the purpose of civil society. So yeah, the animals sometimes go off script, you know, the the hares go crazy on their John Deere tractors and just their wanton destruction in their little hair-like, you know, sort of behavioral genes. It's like, yeah, <laughs> just gonna go crazy. So <laughs> I wanted to talk a little bit more about um, some of the other work that you've done. Uh-huh. Kate asked earlier about digital humanities and your work in that field. Uh, before the show, we spoke a little bit about alphabets. Would you talk a little bit about, you've had such a long and storied career about the different projects that you've taken on, and maybe even explain your title at UCLA. Oh, okay. Uh, My title at UCLA is Breslauer Professor of Bibliographical Studies in the Department of Information Studies. And bibliography is um, um, a field of of long historical standing, and we can track it back to the second, third centuries of the Common Era um, and the work of of the figures who actually helped to establish the textual authority of the sacred Old Testament and then New Testament texts. New Testament still being composed in that period, but the Old Testament texts were very scattered in terms of their witnesses and what witnesses being documentary evidence. So bibliography was the collational study, right, comparative study of different pieces of evidence to try to figure out what's the authoritative text. So so that's a, a long um, humanist uh Uh, a a humanist field with a very long uh, pedigree. And though I'm not trained in the traditions of bibliography, which are largely looking at certain kinds of physical features of the book um, to establish its production history or its, usually its production history or its description, I have spent most of my adult life making books, writing books, um, studying the history of the books and the history of writing. The history of the alphabet um, was an early uh, enthusiasm for me. Um, as a child, I had alphabet paper on the wall of my bedroom, and I would say to my mother, 
these letters, you know, like really tell me, you know, what can they do? And she said, every word in the English language can be spelled with these 26 letters. And I would lie there at night and go, no, she can't be right. She just can't be right. There have to be words. You know, there's so many words and there's so few letters. (laughs) (laughs) So amazing. Yeah, Yeah. I was just like, I I was going to prove her wrong. But of course, you know, needless to say, I did not. So my interest in the letters as a visual symbol and as visual forms onto which all kinds of symbolic systems have been projected was part of the early work I did as a grad student. Mind you, I had already been doing letterpress printing for 20-some years, before 30 years almost by that time, um, because I printed my first letterpress book in 1972. And I got really interested in the visual properties of language, almost like a score. Like, could Mm -hmm. could it be like a score? And so I got really interested in letter forms, really interested in visual forms of knowledge production. But I was trained as a drawer. Like, I'm an artist, right? I can draw. And so visuality and knowledge and their relationship to each other has pretty much informed all the academic work I've done. And that sort of feeds into digital humanities because digital humanities is work done at the intersection of computational tools, so things that can do analytics and matching and sorting and counting and remediation of various kinds, right? So take any anything and put it into digital format and then you can do things with that because of its structure. So and then, but it meets the humanities by saying, okay, what if we wanted to do that bibliographical work? What happens if we take those early textual pieces of textual evidence and turn them into something that can be processed computationally? Then we can read a corpus at a very large scale. We can see all kinds of evidence at a scale that a human cannot in their lifetime. I can't take 10,000 pages of a newspaper, right, Mm -hmm. that was printed between 1860 and 1870 and read through it for every instance of the word emancipation to see where that debate is located. But I can do that electronically and then go back into the papers, see where the co-locations are, and begin to look at how that discourse changes. Mm-hmm. So my own particular interest is in visualization and how to take humanistic approaches to visualization back into the digital. And that's a really complicated discussion, so I won't go into it. Mm-hmm. But essentially, you know, that's... Um, we'll have to have you back to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, you so. write, a, write a book about that as well. Okay. Yeah, no, I've written about that oh. many times. Well, okay, great. Well, <laughs> write a book called Graphesis. That's about visual forms of knowledge production in the digital age. Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> great. Well, um, well, Joanna, thank you so much for coming to the show today and for talking about um, your book. Well, we largely talk about downdrift because it's true. The theory book is a little dense. Is that the word? I think that's a good yeah. word to use. I wanted to ask you <laughs> actually a little bit about the way that you introduce the social, the various social systems to the animals in, in, mm-hmm. in downdrift because it seems like almost a direct application of of the book of theory? Yeah, no, I mean, basically the the premise is that, um, you know, one of the things that physicists discovered as they started to look at the physical world was that the Newtonian physics, which are mechanical, and that look at continuous processes that are largely predictable, 
that those Newtonian laws don't work at certain scales. And they don't work at the micro scale, the nano scale, and they don't work at the macro scale. To understand what was going on, they had to come up with a completely different explanation of the phenomena of the natural world. And that explanation was that there's a kind of indeterminacy, that was Heisenberg, and that there's a thing called quanta. And quanta are the kind of minimal units of physical experience in the physical world. And that because they are discrete and discontinuous, they're not predictable. So if you can imagine, you know, if you have, you know, a car going downhill, that's mechanical. You can see pretty much where it's going to go. But if you're launching a boxcar and then another boxcar and then another boxcar, you can kind of tell where it might go. But at each point, each boxcar has a set of probable possibilities for where it might go. So that's in a nutshell kind of very, you know, so there's an indeterminacy there. But what happens is that um, various kinds of phenomena at the level of field and like the whole is light a wave or is light a particle create wave functions that when the indeterminacy is intervened and there's a collapse, they then take on a particular form, right? It's like, oh, the waveform collapses. So if you think about what happens in a room, even in a conversation, right? It's like, I don't transfer information to you in a mechanistic way. Right? I, can't, I can't take my thoughts and give them to you. We have a conversation. And in that conversation, y- you could actually look at this in a physical sense to see sound waves. We would see sound mm. waves in here. We'd see heat waves in here. We'd see a whole set of fields and force fields. There's a certain moment in the exchange among us right, where a whole set of questions will collapse into an understanding. Right? That's a quantum moment. Like, that's a moment where the quantum field collapses. And there are many other aspects of of quantum physics that I think can be usefully applied to explain the way that social processes work through various kinds of fields that we don't see, but we don't see heat, right? We don't see electromagnetism. They're at work all the time. So the question is, are there aspects of the social experience that can be explained by thinking about various kinds of waves, fields, forces at work that, um, you know, are part of, that are created by the interactions among human beings and that also can explain the way in which, again, opinion gets formed. Like, what's a buzz? What does it mean when something gets a buzz around it? Where is that buzz, right? It's not just mechanistic, right? And again, this is where I go back to, it's not just reason, it's affect, right? The affect of forces in a room, like, you you know, watch one uh, obstreperous person in a group suddenly set up objections and the entire room will polarize. Mm-hmm. polarizes really fast, and they command this attention within this larger field. So how are those processes working? So traditional sociology and psychology are very mechanistic, right? They'll say, okay, well, this person had these characteristics, demographics, and so forth. You know that's not true. You know that charisma, capacity to command attention, all kinds of things are working. So my basic line is, you know, we always talk about media as social, but we should talk about the social as a medium. Mm-hmm. What kind of medium is it? And the animals in downdrift are being transformed through these various kinds of influences that are working across the medium of the social. Oh, that is so fascinating. Um, I, want, I wanted to make a joke <laughs> Did about, that make how, it clear? <laughs> well, about how the quantum collapse is also a, a deeply optimistic version of what's happening in here <laughs> in yeah. regards to myself. We're out of time. Um, <laughs> but 
Thank you so much, Joanna. That was Joanna Drucker, author of Down Drift, an eco-fiction, and the general theory of social relativity. Right. I got that one right that time. Thank you so Thank much, you. Joanna. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Lyra Smith. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistance is provided by William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Our interns, Samson Amore, Natasha Boyd, and Joaquin Perez. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful recording studios in the heart of Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Thank you.